Well, hey, and welcome to episode 23 of the Gospel for Everyone podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Krismer, and I'm so glad you're here. Well, in today's episode, Jason, Josh, and I sit down and we discuss what it means to be led by the Spirit and how to know that you actually are. Uh, We talk about adoption into sonship and its importance, and we talk about how our church can actively encourage one another in not living by the flesh. As always, I do suggest if you've not yet listened to the message from Sunday, please go back and do so. It's going to make this conversation make a lot more sense. You can find that message at quadcity.church. Well, without further ado, buckle up, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hey, guys. Happy Monday. Hey. Happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Yep. Josh. MLK Day. Let's go. Yeah. It's raining. Man. Press getting this rain stuff. <laughs> it's uh, a nice rain though. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, we when I got here, the sun was still down, right? It was like seven fifteen or yeah. whatever. And now looking out the window here, it's like, oh, that's a nice sight. My feet are wet. Your feet are wet. You did have to go back out in the rain. I did so have to go back out in the rain. It did soured me. And I didn't. I was like, I don't need my rain jacket because my <laughs> actual thought was like, I'm gonna park right by the door. I'm gonna run right in. I'm not even gonna be outside for two seconds. I don't need my rain jacket. Yeah. Didn't work out for you, though. Did not work out for me. Well, hey, uh, this week we're going to jump right in because we have all sorts of stuff to cover. Um, This past Sunday, we were in Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 17, um, and we have tons of questions. But before we get into any of those questions, I know there was at least one thing that we didn't have quite enough time to dig super deep into that, Jason, I want to let you spend a little bit more time in, and that's this, this idea of this word, Abba. Uh, I know a lot of people you had made reference in the message. A lot of people have this this assumption or preconceived notion that that means like daddy, right? So tell us what it actually means and why it's significant. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it is one of the things that I said in the sermon. Hey, I just don't have time for this. Um, I grew up hearing that it meant daddy. And so, uh, but as a part of my study for this message, you know, I'm trying to study the text. So I'm studying and I'm looking it up and I, begin to see all of this research that's been done in the last several years that, yeah, it's not, it doesn't really mean daddy. And here's, here's why. Um, Because for us, the word daddy is a children's word. Like Josh, you probably don't look at your father and call him daddy at 30, whatever you are, eight, 39, 39. I do not. No, because it's a, and it's a word that goes away. We it's a child's word. Mommy and daddy are children's words. And, um, and so when we bring that kind of mentality and apply it to this word, Abba, it undermines the fact that this word, this Abba, it is a familial word. It is a word that you would use in a family that denotes intimacy, but it's not a child's word. You go to Israel today or in Aramaic countries today, a grown man still calls his father Abba. It's a word of respect, um, but it's not childish. It is intimate, but it is it, it does not have uh, uh, the kind of babbly mentality that a mama, papa, dada kind of word does. And so... Um, it still garners great respect. And so that's why it, it, we, we have to remember he is still God. He's not, he, he's still almighty. And there, there needs to be a reverence and awe that probably doesn't come with daddy, um, but it does with Abba. And so it is, it is an adult male would have used this word to speak of his father. And so um, I think that's why we we kind of do a bit of a disservice when we dumb it down to just meaning daddy. Yeah, and I think probably there is some good heart behind the idea of the intimacy Correct. between a small yeah. child, the dependence really rather, yeah. between a small child and their daddy, yeah. right? There is something yeah. there in that relationship. 
and I think again, what this word Abba communicates is that there is this mutual respect, but still this dependency and relationship with this, the same person as you grow and mature. So, yeah, again, we just grow out of that word, daddy. It's, it's a children's word. This word Abba is not a children's word. And so it still garners great respect in a, in, in a, when Jesus is in the garden at the age of 30 and he's using this word, it's not him reverting to like a three-year-old toddler. Um, right. And so I think we just having that idea that this is a grown man's word. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that matters. Yeah, that's good. Well, we've got like six or seven questions we need to get to today, which is awesome. Thank you, everyone that sent in a question. Super helpful to be able to clarify anything that wasn't super clear. Uh, many of which, right, our message mostly uh, this past week was specifically about, right, being a child of God. What does that look like? Being marked by the Spirit. What does that mean? What does that look like? How do we know, right? That's a question that I know is burning in everyone. And we we took a bit of time to try to answer that, but let's just try to tighten it up with some of these specific questions here over the next uh, 30 or 40 minutes or so. So here's the first one. This question came in by Chris. Uh, here's the question. Would inner peace, inner peace is, is in quotes, so this idea of inner peace, would inner peace be the key to knowing you are a child of God? He elaborates with this next uh, sentence here. He says, whenever I do acts that please God's will, I experience a very special feeling of inner peace and, and calm within, knowing what, how I acted was pleasing to him. So the question, would this idea of inner peace be a way that we know we are children of God? Yeah, I think we talked about that a little bit, and I'm sure we'll hit it again. I think verse 16 talks about that a little bit, the Spirit confirming with our spirit that we're children of God. I think that plays into it. Again, I would say with the inner peace part, um, I would just caution, just be careful. Again, there are so many people that I know um, who are perfectly at peace in the midst of their sin. Like they don't have any conviction or guilt over their sin, and they are completely at peace. And to, to, to allow something that subjective to, to be the determining factor of whether or not I'm marked by the Spirit, I think is just, uh, it can be a little scary. Um, so again, I think it has to be one of many markers mm-hmm. when it comes to being connected to the Spirit. So Am I producing the fruit of the Spirit? Do I have a love and affection for God in my heart? Like those things matter too. Scripture points to those things as well. So uh, inner peace, yes. Um, we do know that that peace is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. There is this sense that peace will come with the fruit of the Spirit, as a fruit of the Spirit. So Yes, 100%. It is a part of it. Again, I just, it's so subjective. Mm-hmm. Nobody else can speak into, I can't look at you and say, you have peace, inner peace. I can't, I can't yep. determine that. Um, but we should have markers in our life where people can see the spirit in us. Uh, inner peace just isn't one of them. Um, but God does want to do that. He wants to provide that for his kids, for sure. Uh, I just say, don't put all of your eggs in that basket would be my... Yeah, yeah, 100%. Inner peace alone is probably a bad litmus test when it comes to you being in the spirit. But inner peace, again, being a fruit of the spirit, in addition to love, joy, patience, right? Kindness, goodness, gentleness. All of these things... Which uh, are all outward. Right, right, 100%. Like that in addition to some other fruits of the spirit is a great, uh, gives us a great understanding of our standing in, in the spirit. Okay. Yeah. And you know, the word peace is Shalom and Shalom is this perfection that eventually comes when all things that are wrong are made right. And so really part of peace too, is working on the behalf of God to enact those things that there are relationships that are, that I've broken, that I've caused, like, because I'm a child of God, I would then seek to be at peace with uh, all believers, all man. I mean, Paul doesn't he say he says that in Romans, uh, live, live at peace. So it depends on you, yeah. right? He's not talking about in inside. There's no inner part of that. There, it, it comes from the inner of knowing I am a child of God, but it then works itself out 
in the way in which I live and move and act in the world. So I think even a better picture is the word shalom and like what that really looks like and what God is trying to ultimately drive us to as followers of God. And that helps us move away from just subjectivity. Because I can look at you and really know, oh, are you actually seeking to live in a way that is peaceful with all humanity? Mm-hmm. I can clearly look at that, right? And the way you talk to people and act with people, if you have factions and dissension, and all those things. So maybe that's even a better way to, to frame it. That is good, yeah. So the idea of inner peace isn't a fruit of the spirit. Peace, shalom, peace is a fruit of right. the spirit, but it has, right, that's inward, but it, there's also an outward component is kind of what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, and I think it's just because like you touched on so many people wonder or have doubts, am I really a child of God? Mm-hmm. Like, that is such a big question. And I think the other part of this is uh, something about the idea of the spirit. We have a lot of questions about that, too. And that this is kind of touching on that a little bit. How do I know, right? How do I know um, that the spirit of God is in me? Yeah. Uh, we just have so many questions about that um, as believers. And it, because it's all over the map when you talk about the Holy Spirit. Yep. And sometimes we've done a disservice to it, even within the church. And so I think this is just people wrestling. I know we had that conversation, Jason, as we were walking through this message. Like, I don't ever doubt that I'm a child of God. Like, I have zero. Like, I have this incredible gift of faith. Like, God has just blessed me. My wife were talking about this yesterday. She was talking about conviction and, and guilt. And I was like, you, gotta, you have to be careful. You know, Corinthians talks about worldly guilt versus godly sorrow and that kind of stuff. And she was like, I always just, I always just wonder, I always just doubt. And I was like, so like, is this going to be the tension the rest of my life? I was like, there is some of that, that tension and conviction that helps drive me to repentance. But like, if you're ever doubting that you're God's child, that condemnation is still on you, that's the voice of the spirit or the, not the voice of the spirit, the voice of the evil one. That That's our enemy. And again, I know some people just hear that louder than others. And I, I'm grateful that I just don't like have that weird peace or that struggle. I just know, and I don't know how to know, and I can't even formulate it for other people. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't tell you why I know. I just go, there's nothing that makes me doubt that I'm his child. I do want to affirm, um, you know, Chris's inner peace part. We, we can't uh, ignore the fact like Philippians tells us, right? And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So there is this, there is somewhere this thing in us, the peace of God. Um, We talked about this in Romans, that there's a difference between peace with God and the peace of God. You know, it being in Jesus, we are reconciled and now we have peace with God. Like we are no longer his enemies. We've, We've laid down, we've surrendered our weapons. We're no longer at war with God. But there's also a peace of God that transcends all understanding. So what Chris is describing is this thing that is in us. There is this inner peace that guards our heart, guards our mind, so that anxiety doesn't rule and reign over us. There is that peace that Scripture talks about. Uh, Again, I just want to caution, there are a lot of people who have who are perfectly at peace, who who do not struggle in their sin. They could be in blatant disobedience to God and there's no struggle. They are perfectly at peace. So again, just, I just don't want to make sure that we don't use that as, uh, as the, the bar in and of itself. We, it, it gets added to the list. And I think again, in Chris's question, he's asking specifically about uh, things that, that he feels, this peace that he feels when he does what he perceives as the yeah. will of God, the yeah. things that scripturally he knows yeah. he should be doing. He's being obedient. And again, that's where we know, oh, okay, yes. Then we can be confident that that peace is coming from him. Right? Yep. That, that yeah. inner sense of peace. Yeah. I mean, blessed are the peacemakers. Yeah. yeah. Like literally doing yeah, yeah, the yeah, thing, yeah. and he's probably doing those things. And when you do that, God, Jesus said you'd be blessed. Mm-hmm. So there is that very clear piece of, hey, what does it look like to be a peacemaker? For sure. I think Chris is living that out. And he's like, oh, when I do this, this feels like this is what God wants us to do. I'm like, yeah, that's it. Keep, keep doing, doing that. Yeah, thing. keep doing those things. That's so good. Okay, let's move on. This next question is kind of what Jason just alluded to. It comes from Luke. Thanks, Luke, for the question and, and his questions regarding verse 16, which we wrestled with as a team for like, a couple hours. I mean, multiple times over the course of a couple of days, but I remember sitting in a room for an hour, just wrestling with this idea, right? That 
uh, of the spirit bearing witness to our own spirits, right? Um, so the Luke's question is, is this similar to Revelation, where it explains that we have a seal of ownership placed over us, that we are God's property, the spirit himself bearing witness that we are God's property? Like, is this kind of the same thing that's talked about in Revelation? Um, maybe. Again, we didn't come to any great, great uh, conclusion. And so, yeah, Ephesians talks about that, how we are sealed with the Spirit. And so, yes, there is this mark in us that the, the Spirit is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. So all of these pieces can play together. And so um, there, there's, let me give you two more other pieces to this. Um, we know that in the Old Testament that that for any for for any uh, accusation or testimony to be received in a court, there had to be two witnesses, right? So no accusation could be verified without two witnesses. And some look at this text and say, well, that's part of what's going on here is that when we stand before God, it's our spirit bearing witness that we're God's children and the spirit adding to it and saying, yes, he is a child of God. And so the, the two witnesses are standing up on our behalf before God. And so there's some who look at it and see that. Um, but again, there's still, there's still something inward in this one. There's still something that, that seems subjective that the spirit is working with our spirit to confirm or to bear witness that we are God's children. And again, the context of all of this, to me, doesn't match with a someday over the rainbow when we die. It's not what Paul's at in Romans 8. It is about helping us right now determine whether we're in the flesh or in the spirit. That's the whole point of this section of this text. So I think that's what he's trying to get to. And somehow he uses his spirit to help confirm that in us. Um, there was one great um, point our friend Michael um, shared with me. He came up after the 11 o'clock service, and um, and he said, while you were talking about that, he said, it was almost like the Spirit reminded me. He said, because I, I used the illustration that, you know, as, yeah, when we talked about somebody on our team that said, hey, do my children really need to know that they're my children. Don't they just know? I don't have to tell them. And I said, yeah, but not if they're adopted. And, and Michael reminded me, he said, you know, the reality is Jesus needed reminding. Like there was this moment at his baptism where the spirit came down and a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. Like there was this affirmation that even Jesus needed in the flesh the voice of God saying, hey, hey, I, you're my son, and I love you, and I am well pleased with you. Even, even in his flesh, Jesus had that moment where the Spirit shows up, and he hears a voice from heaven affirming that he is the Son of God. Like So we need this. There is something about this that we all need this affirmation, except for Josh. Josh is good. All the rest <laughs> of us need this affirmation. Many of us need this affirmation, this reminder uh, that we are God's children, even Jesus himself. So um, hopefully that answers the question. The Yes, the answer is yes. Could it be part of the seal of the Spirit? Yes, 100%. Um, and again, Ephesians talks about that same thing. Yeah, that's really good. The The next question almost goes hand in hand. It's from Melissa. Thanks, Melissa, for texting this question in. Uh, the question simply is this, how do we know we are marked by the Spirit? Like, how do we know? Well, I think it comes back to what, what I tried to communicate yesterday, which is you're going to see it in your desire to put sin to death. You're going to see it in your uh, growing affection for God. Like, again, we, it's not just about us believing in God. Uh, Satan believes in God. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So our growing affection for God is 
excuse me, uh, is a mark of the Spirit in us. Uh, our desire for holiness is a work of the Spirit in us. The the continual producing of the fruit of the Spirit is a sign of the Spirit in us. So all of those things are, are examples or um, proofs, I guess, that the Holy Spirit is alive and is working in us. Where is it in John where Jesus talks about the comforter is coming? John 15. Is it 15? I, because he gives like a very, hey, when he comes, he will do this. What is that? Uh, John 15, 26. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you must also, and you also must uh, testify. You've been with me from the beginning. Is that what you're speaking of? No, it's like he will he will convict the world hmm. of sin. What is that? It's in John, isn't it? Um, but anyway, my point of that is, like, Jesus kind of tells us the role of the Holy Spirit. So for me, it's like working backwards. Like, if if this is what the Holy Spirit will do, then John it, 16. It, yeah, it's it's the same section. Yeah, so yeah. it starts at the end of John 15, 15, right? But it runs through John 16. Uh-huh. Yeah. What what is the exact verse? Verse 8, it says, When he comes, Boom. he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me, about righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you will see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Yeah, then it keeps going right at verse 13. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Um, he will not speak on his own. He'll speak only what he hears and will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me. He'll do all these things. So for me, again, it's this idea of this, that Jesus said the, the spirit or the helper, the comforter will come and he will convict you. So to go with what you're saying is that's, that's it. So if I do feel that conviction, that doesn't come naturally my flesh doesn't naturally want to be convicted no my flesh just wants to keep doing fleshly things and so i think that is a very good picture for people to go like how do i know i'm actually doing this are you convicted by your sin Mm -hmm. then that's the holy spirit in you working because left to your own you wouldn't do that i think we just get so confused yeah like how do i know that's where my mind goes right what are the things that in and of myself i would never be pursuing right one of the things that comes to mind almost immediately is humility my flesh does not want to be humble. My flesh wants to be prideful. Any moment where I step back and, and have the thought in my mind, oh, practice humility. Practice humility, listen, ask questions, don't just interject. Like that is a mark of the spirit in my life because that's not what I want to do in and of myself. What I want to do in and of myself is say the thing that's right and just keep moving. Um, so I think you're, you're totally on it, Josh, with, yeah, where is... Where can you evidently see the spirit pushing back against the flesh in your life? Like that is the mark of the spirit in you. So, that's good. Anything else to add, Jason? No, I think that's that's it. Let's keep moving. Uh, a few more questions here. This next one is from Sherry. Uh, here's her question. Um, I understand the son of the king analogy. Son is in quotations. Um, however, we are all still adopted into his kingdom. As a daughter of the king, I am a king's kid. Uh, as a daughter, my place in the kingdom is assured. So I, I think she's um, maybe asking for a little more clarity around, um, you know, we were pretty specific around this idea of sonship, what sonship means and what sonship meant when Paul said it. What were the the gender roles then, and why is that idea of sonship actually really, really important? Yeah, uh, it it is so important. And again, again, we could. I did a whole sermon out of Romans eight around adoption many years ago, um, and so there's there's a whole piece to this that we we miss in the Roman culture. Adoption was was primarily, if you go back and you look at um, at history, adoption was primarily, it wasn't just that you're going to pick out a, a two-year-old from the orphanage. It was a lot of times, many times, maybe even most times, if you Google this up, that a wealthy man 
would decide he's going to go adopt a son to leave his inheritance to. And he would go pick his son. He would go choose another adult man or a teenage man, boy, and decide, I like this guy. He's smart. He's going to run the business well. When I die, I want my legacy to live on through him. And they would go adopt an adult male to be the the one who receives the inheritance, even if he had natural-born children. The natural-born children could get left out because I raised a dummy, and so I don't want him to be the one to get my stuff. And so that was very uh, common in the Roman world. And that's the word that's used here, okay? And so when we think about this, we have to make sure that we put this adoption metaphor in the context that Paul would have used it in the city of Rome. And so when they hear that, this that's the word. In fact, the, um, the footnote on my Bible says, the Greek word for adoption to sonship is the term referring to the full legal standing of an adopted male heir in the Roman culture. So it is very specific to males. It is adoption to sonship. Um, And this isn't the only place that we see this. So let's go to Galatians chapter 4. Here's what we see it again. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the adoption to sonship. Verse 6 says, Because you are his sons because you are his sons. And he's writing this to the churches of Galatia, which is full of men and women. And he says to them, you are his sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. You are no longer a slave, but God's child. Since you are his child, you're also an heir. You are his sons. Both male and female are his sons. So this is not in any way um, denigrating women. This is not in any way trying to say that women aren't in the kingdom. That's not it at all. It's exactly the opposite. This is very inclusive. He's saying to all believers, men and women, you are his sons. You were like that adopted male heir that, that God went out and picked and says, I want you to be in my family. I want you to carry on my name. I want you to experience my inheritance, to be my heir, to be a part of my offspring. This is, here's the struggle we get. When we see this in the text, adopted to sonship, and you are my sons, it's not about gender. It's about status. Mm -hmm. It's, a, it's about the standing that we, in Christ, because we are in the natural son of God, whose name is Jesus, because we are now in him, we are given his standing as a very son of God with all of the perks and benefits that come with it. So this is the exact opposite of excluding women or, uh, or shifting away from females. This is the most inclusive. It is bringing all believers. Um, in fact, let me back yeah. up one second. Sorry. Let me back up one second. In Galatians chapter four, if we back up just a couple of verses again, these chapter numbers get in our way sometimes. At the end of chapter three, Paul says in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There isn't male or female. It's not about gender. It's about status. So he just says at the end of chapter 3, there's not male and female. We are all the same in Christ Jesus, and what we are are sons, because we are in the son whose name is Jesus. So hopefully that helps clear it up. Yes, being a female does not mean you're out. It's not. It's exactly the opposite. Being a believer, being in Christ, means you're in as a full share heir of God. Yeah, it, and I think that's you know it is. Um, it is very easy for us today to be stuck in this idea of gender binary in the church. Right, is misogynistic, and, and the, this is where this text comes from. The reality is, when Paul's saying this, 
to a room full of men and women. We are aware in chapter 16, there are women in the room, very important women, might we add. Yeah. We'll get to that at the end of the, the series. But what he's doing is he's actually elevating the women in the room to the place. He's saying, hey, Jesus has elevated you to the place of a son. Yes. He is giving you everything that that you would be entitled to as a son, which is incredibly uh, liberating for, yeah. I would imagine, the women in the room. For us to look at that as something that's degrading seems uh, maybe a little bit off context to me. So I just really want to make sure what Paul's doing is elevating an entire group of women in this in the room that's being spoken to right now. And in turn, for us today, he's elevating them to the, sp- the place of a son. Putting yeah. us all on the same exact level. And, the, and it's not anything that any of us have earned. It is only because we are in Christ. We are given the very standing of the son of God, uh, the natural born son of God named Jesus. So, yeah, yeah it is very inclusive. Yeah, I have some notes on it. So, uh, a couple things. So, the moment the adoption happened, four things were immediately true. I think this is really helpful. One. Uh, his old debt and legal legal obligations were paid. So if there's anything, it was wiped away, i.e. Yep. Jesus, yep. right? Uh, second, he got a new name and was instantly heir of all that the father had. Third, his new father became instantly liable for all his actions, mm-hmm. which is just an incredible picture. Again, when we look at why Paul uses this word in the fourth, the new son had new obligations to honor and please his father. And so when we think about that, when we think about, hey, what does this actually mean? I love it because I kept working through it. It tells us that our relationship with God is based solely on a legal act, right? Like God through Jesus sent Jesus to die to pay the penalty of our sin. And he freed us of that, right? Like you don't win a father. Like you don't get to negotiate for a parent right? It, adoption was this legal act on a part of God, and it cost him greatly, right? So all of those really, really cool things are there. And then, again, there's these privileges, and that's what Paul talks to of sonship, right? There's the security piece. He says, we don't have fear. You're no longer a slave, right? right? The second one is you have authority. You, you now have authority of the king. Like, how incredible is that? That's then the intimacy part. And then I think what for 16 is in there for is that assurance. Mm-hmm. Like I actually have the assurance piece. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. Brendan Manning has a quote in a book. Uh, it's called the furious longings of God. And he says, in it, he says, Christians find it easier at times to believe that God exists rather than that God loves them. And so like we struggle so much with, does God actually love me? And, and remember what we said in Romans chapter five, that God has proven his love for me. He didn't need me. God is not incomplete. He did not need a relationship with Josh, but he did everything to make that relationship available. And so I am more than sure that God loves me and he paid the ultimate price. And because of that, I now am his son. I have legal status, like literally in such a beautiful picture. And so yes, to both of you, when we miss it, or we try to add into it, or we try to, like, you're missing all of the things that Paul says actually comes from you being adopted as the son of God, right? Which is just, again, so many things. And again, that for me, again, it's this, this, this assurance. Like, I, man, I know. Like, God, God has called me his own. It was such a beautiful picture. Yeah, that's so good. Moving on, here's a question from Frank. Frank uh, asked a question specifically about suffering, which we touched on at the end of this message, and we'll talk a significant amount more um, about in the next message this upcoming Sunday. But he's essentially wrestling with this idea of suffering and where these different types of suffering, where suffering comes from. Sometimes it is sanctification, a work of sanctification in our lives. Sometimes it is a result of our own sin. Sometimes it's a result of the sin of others around us. Uh, and Frank, we talked a lot about this specific uh, question in episode 15. So feel free to jump back and reference episode 15. But again, we're also going to be talking about it a bunch more next week. So hang tight on that uh, specific question. And if there's anything unclear, especially after listening to episode 15 or the next message, uh, ask the question. We will certainly spend some time on that uh, further if we have to. Josh, you have something Yeah, else? I would say just to summarize, basically what we said was when suffering 
when you arrive at a moment of suffering, it is wise to ask, is it because of my sin, which are my consequences, or is it because the world is broken yep. and creation is groaning, which is where we're going next? Yeah, and 100%. So, yeah. That's so good. All right. Here are the last two questions. They go kind of hand in hand. Um, and the first one's from Mariella. This is really the meat of where we want to get um, because this is going to be such a, a good and helpful conversation. Here's the question. At Quad City, how can we more boldly address the meaning of not living according to the flesh and, most importantly, in a, uh, a body as big as ours, as a church as big as, as, big as ours, how do we practically in, uh, impart loving and firm discipline, accountability, uh, and accountability among professed followers of Jesus whose patterns of sin become an effort uh, to... Uh, becomes an, uh, oh, sorry, becomes an affront to the reputation of holiness, uh, the holiness of our Lord in his church. So to, to kind of paraphrase the question, how do we pursue some of the same sanctification? How do we move each other in the direction of Jesus when it comes to, uh, to the relationships we have within our specific church being as big as we are? How, how do we do that? Well, I feel like, I just, next time I see Marielle, I just need to give her a hug. Cause this is like, if I was to plant a question, this would be like the perfect jumping off point. So let me, let me take them, take this in two steps. So first she asks, how can we more boldly address the meaning of not living according to the flesh? <clears throat> I hope that this sermon does that. Like, like that's part of why we want to preach this is to, to try to move people to this place to where we don't, Treat grace as a license to sin. And that's a whole part of the Christian culture in America is that we we want to elevate grace to the place to whereby we don't have any expectation of holiness. And Paul actually addresses that in Romans, right? We already saw it in Romans chapter 6 where he says, Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So Paul already addresses this, uh, but there still is this thing. And we get some pushback here often where anytime we elevate the standard of holiness, somebody will come and accuse, uh, make an accusation of legalism. Are you, are you, are you saying we have to obey this or we're not going? And they try to, to, to manipulate the word of God to, a place of legalism, that any act of pushing toward holiness or obedience um, is undermining grace. And I love, I think it's Dallas Willard who said that grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. That we are going to have to work out our salvation. We got we to gotta strive to put sin to death. That's part of following Jesus. But it's not because somehow we're trying to earn our salvation. It is because we have been given salvation that we want to put sin to death, that we want to honor our Father. Um, and so all of that to say, this sermon and many of that have been like it throughout this series, um, we want to keep calling people to holiness and keep talking about this issue of looking more like Jesus. So um, hopefully... We're doing that, Mariella, and we're going to keep trying to have those conversations. The second part of the question is, so how do we do that in a church this big? How do we, as a group of believers, have these conversations where we're pushing each other into holiness, where we're, we're looking at sin and we're seeing what's going on in people's lives and driving them to a place of accountability and submission? And how do we do that? And the reason I say it is such a, if I was going to plant this question, this is the very thing that has caused us to, to move, to shift our ministry model to driving people into discipleship groups. Here's the reality, and I think what Mariella is experiencing is to say, this doesn't happen sitting in a room with 400 people. You can't have these types of uh, uh, relationships sitting in a row staring at the back of the head of the person in front of you. Um, my heart broke over this last week, and you guys know this. We had at least four different really hard pastoral 
issues pop up in families in our church of relationships, divorces, of abuse that has taken place. Like these things have been sitting in our rows for months and years, and we didn't have the ability to step in and to have conversations because unless you're in deep relationship with people, it is so easy just to come and to have a plastered smile and to do your thing and to serve in your ministry and to go home and and really your life's a wreck. And and somebody in the relationship isn't actually living up to the standard that Jesus is calling them to. But nobody knows it because we're just sitting here and we're walking through a lobby. You said something about that exact thing. You said until we're really known, you say that, because that was really helpful. We were talking literally about all of these things, and you said something that is light bulb for me. One of these phrases that I use sitting in my office with people all the time is, look, we cannot be fully loved until we are fully known, okay? And what I mean by that is, if you come in and you share your life story with me, and you leave out all of the messy parts, the then I can't really love you because I don't really know you. The only time I can really love you in all of who you are is when I know all of the messy parts. You're, the, the depth of my love for you can only go to the ability that I know you. Now, when you share all of your messy parts with me, then I can love you deeply, even in all of the messy parts. But if you never share those with me, then I'm actually loving just a fake version of you. It's not the real you. It's just this manufactured picture of you that you're that you're showing me in that moment. So none of us can be fully loved until we are fully known. So we have to allow ourselves to be put in situations, in relationships where we are fully known. And then we can experience what it means to be fully loved by the gospel, in the gospel, with all of our sin and all of our scars and all of our pain and all of our story laid out, then people can fully, truly love us. Um, But we have to be in relationship for that to happen. So we've been talking about these discipleship groups. We shared it with our church, I don't know, what was it, last fall? And then we rolled it out to the whole church at the beginning of January, where we're saying to people, you've got to get in these, where you have to get into a place where somebody has permission to ask you hard questions to love you through difficult situations where we're not going to allow our church just to become a place where people can come and hide and consume a sermon and then go home because that's not going to be transformational unless and until we have the ability to speak into one another's life um, through the gospel, that we actually practice the gospel in each other's life. So, Josh, why don't you take just a second to re- um, Redescribe that's not a good word to uh, to share with us again, yeah. kind of the point and purpose of these discipleship groups and how it is that we're actually going to be able to live out this holiness with and for one another. Yeah, so I think the biggest piece of these groups is based off of some accountability questions. And um, obviously, the groups will meet together, it's groups of five, it's males and females uh, together, gender specific, um, because uh, there's just wait, hang on. Not males and females together. Gender specific is yeah. what I Yeah, M- males yeah so and males with males, females, females with females. Yeah, because there is, um, again, just what we know is is how we share and what we share um, usually uh, just does better in those kinds of groups. And so um, the hope is that people would walk together for uh, a long time. Um, we've wanted to, we put a, we put a number on it because we want to actually really call people to build real relationships. And so we said 18 months to three years. It's interesting. That's been a lot of some of the pushback is I can't commit to something that long. Um, and I, again, my pushback would be, well, I mean, like I've, like hopefully we've committed when we said we were in with Jesus to follow Jesus for the rest of our life. And so, <laughs> so that's what we're trying to get us to do. And again, we are, there may be a moment that something happens in those 18 months and maybe you do have to, okay, we're not like legalistically going once you're in, it's unbreakable. No, but what we're saying is we want people to think long-term instead of short-term incubator, let me get the real quick fix and then be gone because that's nothing of faith. Yeah, relationship takes time too, right? Long so in time. order to be able to make these groups really, really helpful and constructive and, and pure and, and yeah. purposeful, 
Like that's not going to take two weeks. No, nope. it's going to take 12. It, it's going to take 16. Like we're going to need to get there. Mm-hmm. And then you now have these relationships with the foundation to them. So yeah. Sorry, so then well, again, that's exactly it though. Driving exactly. in. once I've hung out with you for four months, five months, six months, eight months, 12, whatever. Then when I begin to get asked these questions, I'm going to read a couple of them off here in a second. I can be honest because I actually know you. I know you a lot better. If if it's only the 13-week life group session, ah, 13 weeks, I can, you know, I don't really get deep enough, right? I really don't share uh, enough. And what we know, too, is uh, when those groups are mixed or when there's more than five, not everybody feels like they have to share. And, in fact, everybody can't share. You don't have enough time. You'd be there forever. And so what we kind of said was we want to put these groups together, be real intentional, groups of five. We want to empower people to get together. There will be some aspects of studying the Scripture because Scripture is where we get our conviction for the truth. How do I know I'm living the right way while I'm reading what God told me to do? And then we said, hey, we want to provide you with, we have like 40 questions, and I have them in front of me, and I'm just going to read a couple off, but that you would ask a couple of these questions every week. Our elders, when they do it, they just randomly put it in a hat and pull one out and go, hey, here we go. Uh, we kicked around. Do we number them and give you a set of dice and you just roll the dice and <laughs> see what the Holy Spirit does? Casting but the, lots. Cost, yeah, but the beauty <laughs> is I think you'll get to know your group, and it's like, hey, work through the questions. But anyway, so here's a couple. Um, a couple e- uh, you know, what ministry opportunity did you miss this week? So where are you actually trying to use your gifts, talents, and abilities? How does your spending reflect your love for God? What recurring sin do you most struggle with? What hard conversations are you avoiding? How did you actually make worshiping God a priority this week? Where have you chosen to not be completely truthful with someone in your life? What do you consider the biggest burden you're carrying? What information did you share with someone that you had no business sharing? Where did you gossip? Who in your life would be surprised to learn you're a Christian? And what context in what context did you dishonor the name of Jesus before others this week? So there's like eight. So again, and it's it's all over the place. Obviously, we have to deal with sin, but there's also we got to carry one another's burdens. We've also got to be spurred on to do good works. So, hey, where are you using the gifts, talents, and abilities that God has given you? Hey, how can I help? Where did you express gratitude in the last week? So, again, it's a wide range of questions that as we begin to hopefully unpack those with one another, we begin to get ahead of things. As Jason was saying, like, it has been a last couple of weeks, a, a, a difficult season of just trying to care for people. And it's, there's always that as the pastor. But some are more than others. and what my feeling has been over the past few years um, is by the time so many people finally get up the courage, especially with marriages to sit in our office and tell you that their marriage is in trouble. We ha- it's like, we have to get the paddles out because the marriage is dead. And, and so much of it feels like I'm fighting a losing battle. Now, don't get me wrong. I've seen God do incredible things. I think we all would say that. But mm-hmm. part of it feels like when it finally gets to the pastor, it's over. And so I'm like, how do we get ahead of this? How do we actually put people together that each week they're asking them, how is your marriage doing? And eventually our hope is you can't just keep lying to one another because you really know one another. And we believe the Holy Spirit will be present in these groups and cause conviction and all want to share. And so when somebody shares something with me in that group, I go, man, hey, this seems serious. Let's get ahead of this. Hey, I'm noticing a pattern. Have you seen that? And again, it's it's beginning to get ahead of those things so that we don't get to the point when they, it finally comes out like, well, it's over. Or that, hey, this has been going on for years and no one knew because we we just don't have the opportunities in our gathering to go, yeah, you know, life is good. So I, that's the hope of it. That's what we really want to be is a genuine place that answers Mariella's question. In a place this big, we have to fight like crazy to get small. Mm-hmm, 100%. Because it is super easy to stay anonymous here. Yeah. <laughs> like, and we know some people want that. But what we're saying is, and what Jesus taught us was that's actually not the way to be a disciple. Yep. 
Yeah, that's so good. And I think Stephanie's question, this this next question, really drives home the application as well. Her question is this. Could you please, it's really less of a question, more of a prompt for us. Please discuss some tools and or strategies to put sin to death in our lives. So Josh, my question for you is, do you have specific questions on your list that help us with this idea of putting sin to death? Yeah. What does that look like within the context of these groups? Yeah, like, uh, you know, where are you justifying sin? That's one of the questions. Yeah. So like, as you talk through that, like, what are those sins uh, you're justifying? Hey, who do you need to forgive? Because unforgiveness is sinful, yep. right? Like, so you actually say it. Hey, where did your anger show itself yeah. in this past week? Yeah, and, and one qualifier here, if you if you don't think that just simply asking and answering these questions are going to help you put sin to death, then I'm not sure you've ever had to answer these questions in front of a group of four other people. Oh, yeah. Right? Right, <laughs> Like, yeah. there's power in, man, I don't want to have to say that again. Yeah. Man, man. I don't want to have to confess to that thing again. I, I actually want to, I want to celebrate the way that I've honored God this week rather than feeling convicted and compelled to confess this way that I dishonored him. And one of the questions is, where did you actually confess sin this week? Yeah. <laughs> like in your life, like where did you actually, in your private time, in, we're all doing all these Bible studies, we're doing all this stuff. Where are we actually going before the Lord and confessing our sin? Where are we saying that? You know, it, I got to think about it. We talked last week about self-control being a fruit of the spirit. And so like sometimes we have to, we build in this, you know, idea of, control and self-control. And one of the things I think to answer Stephanie's question is uh, we don't talk about it a whole lot really in the church, but this idea of fasting, you know, um, Wesley, John Wesley talked about, he fasted on Wednesdays and Fridays um, because it helped him gain control of self so that he could also then learn how to gain and, and learn how to control temptation and sin and those kind of things. Like he denied himself to live for God, right? So he was developing in this practice of doing these things, right? And so if you've, there's another book um, by, by a guy named Richard Foster. He talks about spiritual disciplines. It was written in like the eighties, um, but he talks about fasting as a way uh, to garner this idea of self-control. Like if I can go without food, like I don't know, we do like media fast and we'll do chocolate fast. And I, again, I, what they were talking about in the Bible was food. So again, I, I'm not a doctor. So if you need to talk to your doctor, you know, do all that stuff. Like, so be wise with it. So we don't just jump into it. But like six months ago, well, right when I first got here for the first six months of the past year, I did Wednesdays. I just felt like God was leaning into me to say, hey, there's some things in your life, Josh, that I just want you to get better control over. And so I want you to give up a day of the week. And so what it did too, like my schedule had to be different. Like I, I didn't necessarily like, I was like, well, I can't like go work out in the mornings. I couldn't do lunch dates. Like I, there's a lot of stuff, but it, it was that reality of like, I am sacrificing things so that I can honor God. And so then I build within this idea of self-control and self-discipline and that kind of stuff. And so it's a great way to actually practically wage war against sin, right? And if it is maybe a sin that you keep running up against, man, I, I would encourage you to maybe like have a conversation about what would fasting look like just to give this thing over to God and, and begin to build that kind of practice. But again, with the encouragement of other people, um, those kinds of things are better seen. And again, part of our discipleship group is to develop the habits of spiritual disciplines. We want to see that. Yeah. Yeah. I think Stephanie, again, great prompt to help us have this conversation. The greatest power we have to put sin to death is one another. We are called to, to hold each other to account, to spur one another on to love and good deeds when James talks about it in James chapter five, he says, confess your sins to one another. So when we when you ask that question, hey, where have you confessed sin this week? I, my mind didn't even go to, hey, I'm in my prayer closet confessing sin to God. Mine is, hey, I needed, I had to go confess to my kid that I sinned yeah. against my kid in the way that I responded in that moment. I had to confess sin to my wife. Um, for me, it was like three weeks ago, in my life group, at the end, as everybody was leaving, there was this moment where I shared something that I shouldn't have shared. And I literally, I had to call that those two people back or text them. And I said, please forgive me. I sinned by sharing that thing with you that I shouldn't have shared with you. It wasn't, it wasn't mine to share. And I did. And I, I want to ask your forgiveness. So when I hear you say, 
where did I confess sin this week? Josh, I'm going to ask you, where in your life did you confess it to your wife? Because two things are true. One, I am going to sin all the time, and God expects me to confess that. So this should not be an, (laughs) this should be a habit. There should never be a week where I'm not confessing my sin to somebody. Yeah. I love that text in James too, because it answers Stephanie's question, right? Confess your sins to to each other. So that what? You may be healed. So that you may be healed. Right. Pray 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 for one. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. So there is an aspect to that too. I was just saying the first John, First John 1 is yeah. confess your sin and he is faithful and just Does, to forgive you. Yes. So there is a both and. Right. Yeah. There, and again, I th- so what I but would say is. But that's what helps put it, put it to death. And what yeah. I would say is so for the church, most of us, we have done the confession for right. the Lord. Yep. And or we go. And so what we may even see it is like, well, I don't need to confess to anybody. I can just confess to God. And it's like, well, it's both. You confess to God to get forgiveness. You confess to people to get healed. That's what this text teaches us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say there's other ones when you're thinking about that list. One of the ones, how do we put sin to death? One of the things on the list is, hey, share your screen time with your group this week. Like every iPhone has a screen time number. And one of the questions, or not really a question, it's a command, right? Yeah. Hey, pull out your phone, pull out your screen time. There's a question on there. What did you delete anything or try to hide any internet activity in the past week? You want to put sin to death? Answer that question honestly. So these that's what these are. And again, we can't do that with 400 people in an hour on a Sunday. No. None of us are have the ability to do that. No church can do that. Yeah. It has to be within these relational groups. So, uh, yes, being in the Word on our own can help us put sin to death. Being accountable to somebody else is even more powerful most of the time. Because again, you're right. Most of us who have had ongoing sin struggles, we prayed for God to deliver us from it a thousand times. Mm -hmm. And we struggled in it. Then we got into a place where we actually confessed it to somebody else. And all of a sudden, when we pulled it out of the dark and into the light, transformation began to happen. Again, your your wording is wage war. Yeah. Yeah. So again, that's why I talk about the two pieces of that is I don't go into war by myself. I got to take somebody with me. Got to have my buddy, right? I was, anytime I think of war, I was thinking of Forrest Gump and him, you know, <laughs> right? But that's what I always think about. Like he refused to leave his dude. Yeah. Le- hey, you lean on my back. I'll lean on your back. We'll keep ourselves out of the ring. But like, uh, but again, I'm not going in there solo because solo, it, it, it doesn't work. And then again, the other piece is you, you have to actively fight. Right? For, so for me, like that's where like the fasting and those kind of practices come in. I'm no longer just praying about it. I'm actually engaging my mind and body and all of it into I am waging war. I'm tired of this thing beating me. I'm going to fight it. Yeah. Instead of the back end that we go well this is what it is this is my thing i just it's okay god will forgive me what makes aa so powerful i mean millions hundreds of millions of people over the last what 75 years have used it what is it it isn't that you take the big book and you go home and you study it by yourself it's you walk into a room and you're sitting in a circle in some skanky basement somewhere and you you say it out loud Here's my struggle. This is where I'm at. And this is where I found some victory this week. And this is where I found where I was defeated this week. And it's in that community over and over and over that life change happens. That 40 years of sobriety and I still show up to the group because it's that community. And that obviously, for those of you who don't know, AA came out of somebody trying to look at scripture and say, how do we deal with this in a biblical way? We're just trying to figure out, hey, why do, why do we just want to put that into this one category? Like all of us have sin, whether whatever it is, we need people to help us walk through it together to experience grace with and for one another. So thank you both, uh, Stephanie and Mariella. You set us up to really describe why we're trying to push our church into this direction, because this is how we become better disciples of Jesus. Yeah, that's so good. And I think that's a perfect place to land us for the day. Thanks, guys. We'll talk talk again real soon.
Well, hey, that's a wrap on episode 23 of the Gospel for Everyone podcast. Uh, but before you go, I have Josh here, and I just want to spend a little bit of time, uh, Josh, allowing you to share with everyone how they get engaged with these discipleship groups. Like, how does someone actually sign up for one, start one? How does that whole thing work? Yeah, that's a really that's a really good question. Uh, yeah, that's a really good question, Brendan. Uh, so a part of uh, this is the need first for leaders. And so... What that means is, is that you already have uh, two, three, four people in your life that you're willing to tap on the shoulder to join in with you as we launch out uh, these discipleship groups. And then we have some training. Um, we have a whole a packet that we're putting together and then resources through our pastors that we're able to help uh, guide you in the process um, to kind of give you some uh, guardrails to stay within. And so maybe you're going, ah, oh, I really want to be a part of this, but oh, leading is maybe a little fearful for you. Man, we can help uh, do that. We can help empower you and help you shepherd others. Um, so right now, really, honestly, the easiest way, we're still trying to update our website so that we can have that. But right now, honestly, the easiest way to do that is just by shooting me an email, which is that Josh G at quadcity.church and just saying, hey, I'd love to be a, a discipleship leader and then we can connect and talk through our volunteer process and what all that looks like. We have a process that we kind of work through. And then um, again, here in the next couple of days for those who are wanting to just join a group, maybe maybe you're not in a place to lead, but you are looking to join a group. We're just going to start building kind of a uh, a a waiting list. I don't even know what the, yeah. the, the word is kind of, of people who are looking because we're training leaders right now. We had our first training uh, last night. We've got another one coming up next week uh, for people. And as they start to build their groups, some of them are going to say, hey, I've got space for two people. I've got space for three people. And so over the course of this, we're going to we're going to have that. So hopefully by the time this podcast uh, drops and you guys listen to it, you'll be able to go to our website on quadcity.church slash uh, it's just discipleship, right? You'll be able to go there. You'll get a little blurb about what these discipleship groups are. And you'll be able to see a link that really says, hey, I want to join a group. Um, but but again, if you want to lead, an email to me, joshg at quadcity.church. That way we can begin the conversation and I can get you plugged into the next leader training bef- before we have it. And if not, schedule a time where we can chat. Yeah, that's so good. And I think just, you know, to, to settle the nerves of some of you who might be listening and maybe don't feel quite equipped or quite ready to lead something so in-depth like this, the reality is there's only a couple of things, a couple of attributes you need to be a leader of a group like this. Uh, one is just the the drive and willingness to be entirely transparent, right? We need our leaders of these groups to lead out in transparency, to share your story first so that those around you feel comfortable doing the same with you. That's how this whole thing works, right? So we just need you to be to be honest and transparent, humble in that. And the second piece of it is literally just getting people together, making sure people show up, right? Whatever the day is, every week we're showing up at Starbucks on Gail Gardner at 7 p.m. And that's where we're doing this thing. Yep. Uh, so really, that's that's all you need. We will, our team and Josh and, and his team will continue to support our group leaders through, you know, figuring out what content's helpful to go through and that sort of thing, walking through hard situations alongside you. We're here to help in that. Um, but but the reality is most people can lead a group like this if we're willing to be honest and transparent and move people in the right direction. 100%. And again, the guardrails will help you to go, oh, this is what you this is what you want me to do. And the beauty is if you do already have those relational con- connections um, and you already know those people, you've been having these conversations anyways. What we're just trying to say is, hey, well, let's be intentional. Let's really be intentional about forming a group with the purpose of, discipleship and multiplication because that's a big piece of this and and what that kind of looks like and so uh, yeah definitely any reservation you have we can chat through that or too maybe we can even connect you as a co-leader with someone so try to get that conversation but we just want to just anybody who's willing to raise their hand and say I'm in we want to help the best that we can to get you plugged in that's so good. We know this is what we feel called to as a church. Can't wait to, to jump into these again. Remember go to quadcity.church slash discipleship for more information. All right. Well, if you ever have any questions or comments about our messages on Sundays, we do encourage you to go to quadcity.church slash Romans, where you could submit your questions to be answered right here on the Gospel for Everyone podcast.
Thanks again for joining us today. We hope this was a beneficial conversation for you and your walk with Jesus. And we can't wait to see you again real soon.